Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Do you not know that of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is just for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches up to the clouds, yet he will perish like his own refuse. Yuck. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. We'll pause for just a moment. Imagine the book of Job is like a courtroom. And you have the defense, Job, and you have the prosecution, Job's friends. But some people see the book entirely different. Some people see the book that it's God on trial. And that Job and Job's friends are the plaintiff. And that the friends are called in to witness People who read the book of Job should come at least away with the confidence that Job describes a God who is sovereign, who is able to do what he wants and when he wants. And again, those who read the book of Job should begin to understand the importance of suffering. And they should begin to understand that we live in a broken world and sometimes our world is broken. And sometimes we are hurt and sometimes we are surrounded by people who are hurt. And sometimes in our suffering we need a friend and sometimes in someone else's suffering we need to be a friend. Job's friends are there but are they really there? Zophar is going to give his final speech. His first speech was in chapter 11. This is his second speech. And by the way, chapter 20 is a classic sermon from the ancient world. Zophar's text, verses 4 and 5. Do you not know of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is just for a, a moment? We could actually entitle his sermon, The Way of the Wicked. And we can actually outline his sermon. The joy of the wicked is brief, verses 6 through 11. The sin of the wicked is self-destructive, in verse 12 through 19. The judgment of God is sure, verses 20 through 28. And I'm thinking, wow, this will really preach. But again, Zophar's got the wrong audience. And he's drawn the wrong conclusion. 
There's nothing more frustrating for a preacher when the facts don't go along with the text. All of Job's friends claim that Job is suffering because of Job's sin. For you have said my doctrine is pure and I am clean, but oh, that God would speak and open up his lips against you. It's his way of saying, if God were here, he would confirm my accusation. Zophar is in in effect telling Job, you know what? Job, if God could just simply show up, he would confirm what I'm saying is true. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. He said that in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, and there's a biblical confirmation. He hasn't dealt with us according to our sin. He hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquity. And all of that is true. But it doesn't apply to Job. In the second series of his speech, Zophar tells Job, Don't you realize or don't you know that from the beginning of time since man was placed on the earth, that the triumph of the wicked is short. The joy of the hypocrite is for a moment. The theme of Zophar's speech is the certain fate of the wicked. And all of this is totally interesting in light of what Job has said in chapter 19. Remember when he said with tears in his eyes and his broken heart and the ash heap of life, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm going to see him face to face. You would think that that would move even the hardest heart But Zophar seems totally unaffected. Zophar's rebuke comes from Job's rebuke. Remember in chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, if you just look at the last chapter, the last few verses, it says, If you you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for... Wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know that there's a judgment. It was Job's way of telling all of these people, you know what, you keep accusing me, you keep saying these things about me, but you've got to understand something, that your false accusations are going to catch up with you and God's going to even judge you. And Zophar is insulted. He is completely offended in verse 3. Zophar reminds Job that the life of the wicked is brief. History and experience teach that that's true. Job's pride and position would be thrown away like worthless waste, he says in verse 7. In a series of stinging accusations, Zophar reminds Job that the wicked person's behavior is fatal, like a person enjoys food, that no matter how much a person relishes or cherishes their meal, the food that they eat will become like poison in their belly and eventually kill them in verses 12 and 14. The wealth of the wicked is temporary in verses 15 through 20. The death of the wicked is terrifying and painful, he'll say in verses 21 through 29. When we think about all of this stuff, does the Bible... Give a great deal of encouragement to the wicked. Not really. Will the wicked reap what they sow? The Bible says that that's true. So how are we to think about that? Well, as a formerly wicked person, I would like to say, I thank God that God is in the grace business, in the mercy business, in the forgiveness business. 
that there was a time in each and every one of our lives where if we counted ourselves as the friend of God, when in fact we were the enemy of God, that we became the friend of God when we accepted Christ as our Savior. You see, one of the amazing, amazing, amazing things about the book of Job is that Job's friends can say such awful things, such hurtful things, such condemning things, and God will confront them. And then he will be willing to forgive them. This should give each and every one of us encouragement, especially if you've ever said a hateful thing, a hurtful thing, an insensitive thing. Job's cries continue to go unheeded, So again, look at verses 1 and 2. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answers and says, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer, because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. It's his way of saying, I am deeply offended, Job. I'm wounded to the core. Why is he wounded to the core? Remember what Job has done? He's maintained his innocence. He said, look, I don't understand everything about everything, but what's happening to me seems to be way over the top. Have you ever met someone who didn't understand their pain and they didn't understand their suffering? Or could you honestly say in your own life, every moment that you have experienced any kind of pain or suffering, you go, I completely understand why I'm going through through this. I completely deserve this. Remember what the book of Job has already shown us, that the simplistic thought that the righteous get rewarded and the wicked get bad things happen to them, it's not quite that simple. And again, if the book of Job has taught us anything, it's that if we don't have the access to the information that God has access to, we run the risk of saying some really horrible things. Remember, Zophar believes with all of his heart that God rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked. Zophar is sure that Job is wicked, but just in case, he reminds him that just in case, you should probably turn from your wickedness and turn to God. Deeply offended, Zophar claims to understand Job. Now think about this. You've hurt my feelings, Job. But I I need you to understand something. I understand you. And I am willing to offer my extraordinary insight into your circumstances, and I hope you appreciate it. Verse 3, I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me. That's chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. And the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. In the NIV it says, I hear a rebuke that dishonors me and my understanding inspires me to reply. In other words, you've hurt my feelings, so I have something to say. Have you ever noticed that in a war of words, there's always someone who starts the war. There's someone who says something hurtful and hateful, and then someone feels obligated to respond. 
And then something else is hurtful. And then something else is hurtful. And pretty soon the, the war escalates. But in every war, in every conflict, in every situation, someone has to throw the first punch. Someone has to launch the first missile. Someone has to engage in what they think in their own mind in our modern culture as a preemptive strike. It, the way that you know that this is happening in your own life is when a person says to you, why did you make me hit you? See, you're laughing because you understand just how crazy that sounds. You made me do this. And Zophar is caustic. And he's actually accusing Job that his analysis of the situation is causing Zophar to say some things that might be a little unkind or might be a little unfair. And again, Job's friends have been unkind, unfair, insensitive. There's been a conspicuous lack of compassion. And again, 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 if we learn anything from the book, if we learn anything from our study over and over again, whether it's Job's speech or the response of the people that he's talking to, it's be careful, be compassionate, understand that your words can be of great help or they can be of great harm. And so Zophar is going to launch and he's going to remove all of the filters. He begins by describing the life of the wicked and how brief it is. In verse 4 he says, Do you not know that this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is just for a moment? Again, you have to understand the whole context of the book and all of chapter 19 to understand what's going on. Job is just given this impassioned plea. And so he says, Don't you know that, that from the beginning... Since human beings were placed on the earth, he forgot Job's stirring statement. He forgot about the Redeemer and the Goel. And since Job knows, and he's talked about this kinsman Redeemer, and he's talked about seeing God, and he's talked about all of this stuff, Zophar says it has the same message over and over again. Look, the wicked... They're only going to prosper for a moment. Zophar states the obvious. The life of the wicked is brief. True or false? It is true. The grass withers. The flower fades. But we know that the word of God stands forever. And so. Zophar will make six dramatic points. About the life and the fate of the wicked. But again, when he says, Haven't you known this of old since man was placed on the earth that the triumphing of the wicked is short? And, and, and we have a saying in our own culture and society only the good die young. It, before it was a Billy Joel hit, it was a proverb. But is it true? Are there times when good people die young? Robert Murray McShane was 29 years old when he died. William Whiting Borden, who he was called Borden of Yale, was 25 years old when he died in Egypt. David Brainerd, the famous missionary who came to America to minister the gospel to the Native Americans, he was only 29 years old. 
Are there times when the good do die young? The answer is yes. But according to Zophar, these men must be guilty of some secret sin to be taken away so dramatically and in, in such an untimely fashion. But we're beginning to understand something that maybe life and ministry and a person's life is way more complex than we even began to imagine that God has a plan and a purpose and sometimes that plan and purpose unfolds in a few years and sometimes God in his grace and his mercy allows many years and so he writes that the wicked man's triumph and joy are brief and fleeting in verses four and five Number two, he writes, the wicked man's pride and position will perish forever and be disposed like waste in verses six and seven. And the waste, of course, is that same kind of refuse that Paul describes in the New Testament when he says, I've counted everything that I used to have as loss for the knowledge of the excellency of Jesus Christ. But he says, hey, guess what? The wicked man, and he uses kind of a a difficult image. And number three, the wicked man's life is like a slippery slope or a momentary dream or a vision in verse eight. Number four, the wicked man's family and friends will distance themselves and refuse to look at him or for anything. In other words, that the wicked person's life is going to be such a mess that family and friends will turn from them. Number five, the, the wicked man's children will be stuck with his debts and pay for his mistakes in verse 10. And the wicked man's bones Number six, will be full of them and vigor and sin and will return to the dust. So these are the images in succession that Zophar gives. We're appointed to die, it's true. The Old and the New Testament are full of examples of the wicked living a brief life. And why? Because his fall is great, it says in verses 6 and 7. His name will disappear in verse 8. The children suffer in verse 10. The wicked have to face sometimes a premature death in verse 11. And so again, though his haughtiness mounts up to heavens in verse 6, and his head reaches high to the clouds, the picture, of course is that the wicked really don't usually have a problem with self-esteem. They think that they're the cat's meow. The haughtiness that he's speaking of is an old-fashioned word which we associate with pride. In verse 7, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? It's like you know someone. You grow up with someone. They live their life and then they die. And maybe, well, maybe most of you aren't old enough, but you go to your 10-year class reunion. You go to your 20-year class reunion. You go to your 30-year class reunion. You go to your 40-year class reunion. Hey, whatever happened to that guy? Whatever happened to that gal? They're dead. What? What? What happened? Well, didn't you hear? This person died of a drug overdose. Didn't you hear? This person committed suicide. Didn't you hear that this person prematurely died? Or didn't you hear that this person had cirrhosis of the liver? Or didn't you hear that this person fell asleep and burned himself to death? Didn't you hear? And you go, "I, I I can't believe this. 
I can't believe that this is happening. In verse 8, he will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision in the night. It's the, the ethereal emptiness of life. Like your life is like a dream. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor. Why? They have to ha- ask for handouts from people who have less than they do. And his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of youth vigor but he will lie down with them in the dust in other words you get older and older and you used to think that you were young but then you get older and older and you realize that all of a sudden your life is on a crash course to the end and so he talks about the lifestyle of the wicked being fatal in verses 12 through 20 look what it says in verse 12 though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue The image that he is giving is that the wicked love evil the way people love food. Zophar uses the image of a person who loves the taste of food so much that he refuses to swallow the morsel. The picture, the the image is you hide it under your tongue. I don't want to swallow it yet. Mm, I just want to let it melt in my mouth. Mm, I know that, that I don't want to swallow it because then it'll, it'll be gone. You know what it's like? It's like a child at their four, four-year-old birthday party or five-year-old birthday party. Have you ever seen kids at birthday parties? There, there's, they get ice cream and cake and there's that bowl of ice cream and then they eat the ice cream. You see them enjoying the ice cream and they come to that last bite. It's the final bite. There's no more bite in the bowl and they look at the ice cream. They put it on the spoon. They give it a sad sort of sad longing look at it and they look at it and they in in just deep sorrow almost depression they bring it to their mouth because they know that the ice cream is gone that's what he's describing Zophar may have the wrong audience but he gives a great speech He describes the lifestyle of the wicked that that's the way. They love their food. They don't want to swallow the morsel. They love their wickedness. They love it. They love it. In verse 13, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it mm, mm, in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. The delicious food, the delicious food, the taste was so wonderful, but now it becomes like poison in his system. While eating, he doesn't notice that he's incurred a fatal bite by a deadly cobra. Zophar is preaching a truism. Sin carries with it a certain measure of enjoyment and punishment. What are you doing? Getting high? Don't you know you're wasting your life? No, it's going to be fine. I'm in complete control. Do you realize that if you continue to drink, your liver is going to rot and you're going to die? No, 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 it's okay. Do you realize that if you continue to eat, if you continue to drink, if you continue to drug, if you continue to be sexually promiscuous, 
Don't you understand that your wife or your husband could leave you? Don't you understand what a shame it's going to be for your children? Don't you think that all of this sweet, wonderful nectar that you are imbibing in is going to turn sour in your stomach and it's going to kill you? Have you ever had that conversation with someone? Don't you understand that your lifestyle is going to kill you? Question. Is that really true about Job, though? It really isn't. Is Job... The person who's hooked up to a needle in the hospital on his last breath. Have you ever actually seen someone die of alcohol poisoning? I have. I've been at the hospital. With the wife and the daughter. I've watched as the doctor or the nurse take the needle and stick it in the only vein that's left in their body in the carotid artery. Because they have literally drank themselves to death. Zophar's preaching a truism. Is sin pleasurable for a season? Yes. Is the way of the transgressor hard? Yes. Is sin like a cobra's venom? It, it attacks the neurological centers. It carries through the blood. It infects the whole body. Sin feels good. Sin looks good. Sin tastes good. In verse 15, he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. And God casts them out of his belly. It's Zophar's way of saying evil looks good. Evil feels good. Evil tastes good. And here... He vomits it up again. God casts him out of his belly. Do you know what what Zophar is saying? He's saying what we have known ever since the beginning of time. Ever since human beings started recording scriptures. Ever since people started having conversations with one another. And that is that sin is addictive. The sinner becomes enslaved to his or her sin... Does the addict become enslaved to his or her drug of choice? The answer is yes. The truly wicked refuse to abandon the sin or break from the sin. They become enslaved to the sin. The addict has his or her addiction. They savor, they cherish the pleasure. They think about alcohol. And when they're not thinking about alcohol, they're drinking alcohol. And when they don't have it, they try and figure out how they can get it. And whether it is drugs or sex or food or wealth or power, you understand exactly what the addict is doing. The addict is trying to figure out a way to feel what sin promises, whether it's fame or power or food or wealth or sex or drugs. There's all kinds of different things you can be addicted to. One of my favorite addictions is drama. Do you realize that there are people who are actually addicted to drama? They become empowered. And encouraged by drama. And when there is no drama, when things are 
happen, happening in a peaceful way. They insist on creating drama. Because it's their drug of choice. I think I have more patience with people who are addicted to wealth or power or fame or drugs or alcohol. In verse 16, it says, he will suck the poison of cobras. I know. It's in the Bible. You you probably go, hey, I want to remember this verse. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. I think I could use that on a gift card. (laughs) Do you understand what he's actually saying? He will suck the poison of cobras. Why would anybody do something so stupid? Question. Do addicts push their addiction away or do they bring it close to them? That's what he's talking about. He will suck the poison of cobras. Is it true that when an addict discovers their addiction... They say, I, I can push this away. I don't need this. I don't need this in my life. And they push it away. And just like Forrest Gump with a box of chocolates, you bring it back. I don't need those chocolates. Well, maybe just one. I don't need that. Well, maybe just one. I don't need this, but I'm not quite ready to let this go. I'm not ready to let the alcohol go. I'm not ready to let the drugs go. I'm not ready to let the inappropriate relationships go, the food go, the wealth go, the power go, the food go. And pretty soon, like the toxic poison of a snake that courses through your veins and carries it throughout your body, it kills you. The viper's tongue will slay him. Doesn't that make sense to you? That if you French kiss a cobra, (laughs) that the chances are you could get in trouble. (laughs) Did you guys read in the newspapers about this guy in Kentucky who, he's a snake handler. He's a Kentucky snake handler. He sees that handling snakes is 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 a proof of faith. And of course... He got bit by a snake. Emergency paramedics show up, beg him to go to the hospital. He refuses. They come back one hour later. He is dead. His funeral is this Saturday. Did they kill the snake that bit him? No. You know what? They're going to use it for their Saturday evening service. See, you're laughing because, again, of the ridiculousness of that. The lifestyle of the wicked is fatal. In verse 17, he will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with milk and honey. The wicked man doesn't simply get sick from sin, but he can't enjoy the blessings of life. And that's part of what is being said right here. Because the wicked man simply doesn't just simply get sick from sin, but they wind themselves being robbed of normal friendships and relationships. They turn their wives away. They turn their husbands away. They turn their children away. They turn their grandchildren away. I don't need to tell you stories of people who would rather get high than feed their children. 
or take care of their grandchildren. Milk and staple. And see, you may misunderstand part of what's being said here. Milk and honey were staples. Remember Canaan in the book in the Bible is described as flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey in a land flowing with milk and honey can sustain the population. But the wicked man, the wicked man has lost his taste for the things that normal people used to survive. I don't know if you've grown up in a world where you had beans and rice. And when you weren't having beans and rice, you were having rice and beans. And just to make things a little bit interesting, you would have half beans and half rice. These are basic foods. And basic foods don't satisfy anymore. Nothing satisfies anymore. And that's what happens to the addict. To the wicked. They're not content with anything. One Bible writer says, His taste for sin has ruined his enjoyment of the fundamental blessings of life. If you've ever been with a person who is completely detached, completely embracing their sin, and you say, well, what do you care about? Do you care about your mom? Do you care about your dad? Do you care about your brother? Do you care about your sister? Do you care about your children? Do you care about the past? Do you care about the future? What do you care about? No wonder the Bible warns in Luke chapter 21, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be weighted or charged with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, because that day will come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. The person who is wicked and the person who embraces their sin doesn't think that this could be their last day, that this could be their final moment. In verse 18, he says, He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment. The meaning, the wicked man won't be able to swallow the things that he's labored for. Because he's acquired wealth through sinning. The wealth won't satisfy. Whatever it is that he's stored up, it's just not going to be enough. When he says he will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down from the proceeds of business, he will not gain enjoyment. It's an idiomatic expression where a person has to have more and more and more and more. In our culture and society, when someone gets something that doesn't belong to them, Have you ever heard the expression, I hope you choke on it? That's exactly what this passage is saying. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Take it. And I hope you choke on it. That's what he's saying. I call it the law of diminishing returns. The more you have, the more you want. The wicked man wants the greater and greater and greater dose in order to fulfill the high or or experience the thrill. And the more we sin, the more we lose our ability to enjoy things that are basic, things that are fundamental, things that are pure. In verse 19 it says, For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build. Do you understand what Zophar is saying? Remember Job is fabulously wealthy. And so Zophar says, 
You got your wealth through ill-gotten gains. You stepped on the backs of other people. Job, the reason why you were so... You know what? You hired children in India and Bangladesh to make your Reeboks or Nikes. Is it wrong to take advantage of poor people in order to make yourself rich? Of course it is. But did Job really oppress the poor and forsake the poor? And rob the poor. It just wasn't true. Are there people who forsake the poor. Oppress the poor. And rob the poor. That is true. Do people who oppress the poor. Forsake the poor. And rob the poor. Are they inviting judgment? Yes they are. Is that the explanation for what's going on in Job's life? No, it isn't. Job didn't commit unpardonable sins against the people. Do you know what's happening? In the speech, Zophar is fishing. He's fishing for a secret sin. Like many pastors, he's he's trying to hit a nail on a particular head so a person, when he says something, will go... Gino knows. Gino knows about the secret sin. Gino knows about the drinking, the drugging, the sex, the pornography. When he said those words, he saw my eyes and guilt. He saw it right in my eyes. No, I didn't. I didn't do any of those things for any of those reasons. I'm not fishing for sins to make you feel bad in order for you to feel really, really bad. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. If something is wrong in our life, we can turn from our sin. We can, the most important person who knows isn't me. It's you. It's you know the truth about yourself and you know what you're willing to turn from. Zophar is fishing. For Job's secret sin. Oh, is Job's secret sin the love of money? Verse 20, because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. The wicked don't have a real peace. They don't have a settled peace. Here, Zophar is implying that Job is getting what he deserves. Job, the reason why you've lost everything, the reason why your children have died, the reason why you're suffering this incredible suffering is because, well... Remember what you yourself said, Job, in chapter 7, verse 7? You said, I will never see good ever again. And Zophar says, it's true. You never will. Because you're wicked. And because you deserve this. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. That we can fish... We can accuse, we can guilt, we can manipulate, but is that helpful? It really isn't. What does Job need? A friend. 
What's happening in his life? He's suffering. You know, again, if you ever find yourself in a position where someone is hurt, they're terribly hurt, they're horribly hurt, and they look at you and they just simply say, could you be with me? Could you pray with me? You see, I could really use a friend. And look what he says. In verse 21, the death of the wicked is terrifying and painful. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. The wicked lose everything. We die. There's nothing left that we can consume or covet or steal. That's the idea. Wealth and prosperity has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are people who can accumulate incredible amounts of wealth. Gates has billions of dollars. Steve Jobs had billions of dollars. And when Steve Jobs died, did he take his wealth with him? Someone once said, how much did he leave? And a person said, That's how much people always leave. Sometimes in life, and always in death, we lose everything. In verse 22, he says, In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will be against him. The wicked experience distress and misery. Verse 23, it says, When he is about to fill his stomach, and God will cast him into the fury of his wrath, and it will rain down on him while he's eating. The idea being the wicked will suddenly face God's burning anger. The NIV says, God will rain down his blows upon him. The wicked come to that place where they finally realize that life is ending and death is catching up and judgment is on its way. In verse 24, he says, he will flee from the iron weapon and a bronze bow will pierce him through. Iron in the Bible always represents something that is hard. The evil man will make a run for it, but God will find him with a sword or with a bow, with, with an arrow that's tipped with a bronze arrow. It will pierce him. The picture that Zophar is painting Painting is of a wicked person running away, running away, running away from the judgment of God, trying to go to sleep at night, buying pills so that you can sleep through the night, so that you don't have to think about death, you don't have to think about heaven, you don't have to think about hell, you don't have to think about God. But he says no matter how fast and far you run, there's a painful death that awaits you. Verse 25, it is drawn, it comes out of his body, yet the glittering point comes out of his gall. The picture is a person who's been pierced with an arrow, and you're yanking the arrow out of the dead carcass of the body, and the internal organs explode, and you can see the body fluid dripping from the tip. I know, you're, you're wondering, people used to preach that way in the Old Testament? Yeah. Terrors come upon him in verse 25. Total darkness, verse 26, is reserved for his treasures. 
An unfanned flame will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The idea being, hey, the person is dead. And the person who now lives in the tent that you used to live in, things are going to go even bad for them. The picture is the wicked fleeing judgment, arrows in the darkness. Think, think about the imagery that's being used. Fleeing the judgment, arrows in the darkness, fire, flood, everything catching up with you. And even then it's not the end. Because the wicked is finally dragged out of his or her tent into the courtroom where heaven and earth testify against you. The implication is that Job has gotten his treasures through ill-gotten means. That he's a robber baron who's oppressed the poor, gotten wealthy. Again, true or false? Not really true. He says the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. Zophar says, hey, heaven's keeping a record. Earth contains the evidence. There's enough evidence in heaven and on the earth, Job, to convict you of being guilty. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of wrath. God's burning anger, verse 23. Excruciating pain, verse 24. Overcome by terrors, verse 25. Consumed by fire. Verses 28 and 29. What's your overall opinion of the way of the wicked? Looks pretty bleak. Looks pretty, pretty bleak. He ends with verse 29, which is so painful it's hard for me to even read the verse but I will this is the portion from God for a wicked man the heritage appointed to him by God do you understand what's saying it, it's Zophar's way of saying the end What is that portion? This is the portion from God. What is the portion? Remember what he's done. Every conceivable, every imaginable calamity, every hunger, every distress, every misery, armed attack, fire, loss of peace and tranquility, heaven and hell conspiring against you, possessions disappear. Part of what's happening is, Zophar isn't comforting his friend or encouraging his friend or being a friend. Zophar is the judge. Zophar is the jury. He renders his verdict. Anyone as hopelessly wicked as you probably will never be forgiven. Can you imagine? Can you imagine someone in pain and who is hurt and who's suffering and who's trying to figure out what's going on in their life? They're dying of cancer. They're dying of some disease. And you go to them and you say, the reason why you're dying of cancer or some disease is you've lived a horrible life and you're getting what you deserve. And the truth is God probably could never forgive you. 
Oh, by the way, Jesus loves you. Have a good day. Here is what he's saying. God probably won't have mercy on anyone as bad as you. G. Campbell Morgan, who's a much better preacher than me, writes, In a passage, thrilling with passion, Zophar describes the instability of evil gains. There is a triumph, but it's short. There's a mounting up, but it's followed by a swift vanishing. There's a sense of youth, but it bends to dust. There's a sweetness, but a remorse, a swallowing down which issues in a vomiting, a getting without rejoicing. The final nemesis of the wicked is that God turns upon him, pursues him with instruments of judgment. Darkness enwraps him. His sin is set in the light of the heavens and earth turns against him. Let the history of wickedness be considered and it will be seen how true that it is. See, here's what's really painful. Much of what Zophar says is true. Do the people who live in willful, personal, deliberate, consistent rebellion, are they, are they facing some pretty difficult things? See, this is why we as Christians say, no, 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 no. God is in the business of healing the sick, forgiving the sinner, grace and mercy for everyone who turns to Christ. You see, here's the problem. Zophar's sermon would get an A in almost any seminary in America. Man, brilliant introduction. Great body. Impressive conclusion. But there's something missing from your sermon. Hope is absent. Faith is absent. Comfort, absent. If faith and hope and love and comfort are supposed to be a part of every time we speak, then Zophar gets an F. Remember, Job has claimed that sin is a private matter between him and God. Zophar doesn't address the issue. He doesn't provide substantial evidence that Job is wrong. Job is hurting. His problem is suffering. Zophar's magic bullet is, if you, wouldn't, if you weren't just such a big, fat, stinking sinner, then you wouldn't have all these problems. But Job's need is spiritual. The only good news is the fact that Job and Zophar are still talking. (laughs) I guess as long as there's lines of communication, there's some hope. Phillips Brooks writes, quote, the truest help we can render the afflicted person is not to take his burden from him, but to call out his best strength that he may be able to bear it If someone is really, really, really hurt and really, really suffering, 
Sometimes the best thing that you can do is say, how can I give hope? How can I give faith? How can I give love? How can I give comfort? In Zophar's failed friendship, it's aggravated by a plausible theology that's inappropriately applied. And so if you find yourself in a tragic situation where you go, how can I give faith? How can I give hope? How can I give love? How can I give encouragement? How can I give comfort? And you're faced with a person who's suffering and you don't even know how to do that. Pause. And say, this might be one of those times where If I can't say something right, it's probably a good idea for me to not say anything at all. So Lord, help me. Help me pray for this person. Help me minister to this person. Help me have compassion and mercy for this person. Help me to think carefully and biblically, even about their sin, no matter how gross or egregious, knowing that we have a faithful Savior, that if we confess our sin, He really is faithful and just to forgive us. But if you don't know any of those things... Just be careful. Be confident in Christ. And be careful. Because remember remember what we're learning. Invariably, everyone will suffer. And when you suffer, you're going to need a friend. Be the kind of friend that you need in the darkest moment of your life. And you'll be fine. Ooh, look what's next. Ooh, chapter 21. Go ahead. It's okay to read ahead. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, sometimes it's difficult for us to connect the dots, apply the verses, Lord, we understand that sometimes we need help in order to make this make sense. Lord, I pray that even as we continue to read the book of Job, that we would remember the beginning of the book, that we would look forward to the end of the book, and that we would read the book through that wonderful lens of the life of our Savior, the love of our Savior, the message of our Savior, the mercy of our Savior, and the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's stand.